You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. In for Kelly Evans, I'm Tyler Matheson. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange. It's been a tug of war between virus worries and virus relief. A new COVID-19 variant abroad overshadowing that stimulus deal here at home for most of the morning. But stocks making a comeback with the Dow now surging ever so slightly into positive territory. It happened just moments ago. The question is, where do we go from here? Plus, a closer look at what's in that latest round of stimulus, how quickly people and businesses could see relief and what it may mean for the recovery. And from beaker to bulk production, we check in with one company that makes components for the vaccine on how that rollout is going. Can they keep pace with demand? We begin, though, today with the markets and Mr. Santoli. Mike? Tyler, thank you very much. Actually been uh, dip buying uh, active since the open. Uh, really a modest decline in the S&P right now, a little, a little more than half a percent. The low in the morning was about 36.36. So in the morning, we swept away most of December's gains, went back to late November levels. Here we are, the Dow a little bit green. Check out the Dow futures overnight just to see the distance traveled. We did have that uh, sell-off originating uh, in Europe. Some of these concerns about a new uh, coronavirus uh, strain. You see, right around 6 a.m., we bottomed out. That decline happened mostly around the European Open, and we have fought our way back. It should be noted that the Dow is really benefiting today from J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Nike. Uh, All three of those together are creating about 200 points of upside support for the Dow. Now, take a look at the bank stocks. They are uh, reacting to Friday. Somewhat surprising news. The Fed was going to allow them to restart share repurchases in some limited amounts. And you see that uh, this was not really expected. You can see the market was a little bit wrong footed. That was the news of the Fed. You popped um, right at the close the other day on Friday. And we are carrying through that strength today. So still a little bit of a value tilt. Working against the recovery, Tesla, uh, its first day as a member of the S&P 500, it is down 5%, but keep in mind, uh, it had a huge pop right into the close. So uh, 655 is where it closed on Thursday. So we're still trading above Thursday's levels. And this is on a quarter-to-date basis, kind of minimizes just the angle of ascent there. But that's 54%, Tyler, just since September 30th. All right, Mike, thank you very much. Mike Santoli, uh, stock staging that major midday comeback after initially dropping on concerns about a new strain of coronavirus. Uh, so is today's reversal a good sign for the re- resilience of this record rally? Joining us now with more on the market risks and his 2021 investment playbook is Jim McDonald, chief investment strategist at Northern Trust. What kind of year do you see ahead, Jim? Well, it's going to be a year, Tyler, that's going to be marked by very strong economic recovery in the second half. And the first half might be a little choppier as you see a rise in cases, a rise in hospitalizations, battling the increase in vaccination. All of this will be happening in a context where stocks and risk assets like credit are going to grow into the valuations that have been realized through a tremendous rally since March. So we think it will be a reasonable year for risk taking, not a gangbusters one. And the economic picture looks to be the most clear that we've seen in quite some time. So uh, it sounds to me like you're saying it's going to be an okay year, but not as good a year in terms of returns for the S&P, say, as 2020 has been. Correct. That would be a positive upside surprise. We've got valuations right now that have priced in a lot of this recovery. I think that's probably the biggest thing that could constrain the returns. We're not going to see a negative impulse from monetary policy. Fiscal will be there. The one big uncertainty that remains, and it really isn't getting a lot of attention, is the Georgia Senate runoff, which is 
January 5th and has the potential to reverse the positive election trade that occurred after the divided government result in November. So that is one major issue that's got to be resolved early in the year, and that will help set the tone for the full year. In other words, if those two Georgia seats turn to the Democrat side, that would take away the premium that's been built in, that there will be uh, uh, divided government and that that could be bad for markets. I think that's true. We thought this was the most positive scenario, Mm -hmm. the divided government scenario. The second most likely and constructive was a Democratic sweep with a very small Senate majority, thinking they will be constrained mm-hmm. in spending and taxes. But if they do have 50 seats plus the vice president, they can do taxes and they can do spending through the reconciliation process. The final point, though, is you've really got to put this into context. The vaccines, I think, have been as big of a positive catalyst mm-hmm. for risk taking. If you look at the movement in November, the vaccines really gave a second boost to the rally that started with the election. Among the sectors you like in equities, and I want to get to bonds in just a minute, are global infrastructure and global real estate. What kinds of companies are you talking about there in global infrastructure? You're talking about large in- engineering companies, uh, the, the aggregate companies, what? Sure. So a lot of it is toll-oriented kind of companies, whether it's airports or it's ports or it's utilities that make money on a recurring basis. And if inflation comes back, they will get some benefit. They've also been particularly hurt by the pandemic. And so they will see a nice rebound with economic recovery coming back. They were not great performers in 2020, and we expect them to be better performers in 2021. How many they are a lower-risk risk asset, and that's one of the themes in our risk-taking in going into 2021 is some of the lower-risk risk assets, including high-yield bonds, which we think could deliver return comparable to equities with measurably less risk. I want to turn back to, to ports and airport companies. What, which ones are public? I, I, th- I thought most of them were government-owned or, or owned by an authority, uh, an operating authority like the Port Authority in New York. Sure, there definitely are some, uh, Tom. This is a global phenomenon, and mm-hmm. it's a list of global stocks that comprise the global listed infrastructure market. Mm-hmm. So it's not just airports, and it's also things like utilities that uh, have seen a downturn in demand mm-hmm. and will see some nice improvement as the economy rebounds, really starting in uh, the middle part of the year. Global real estate, uh, why are you per- uh, and what are you talking about there, and why are you persuaded that it may have a pop? Because all I see as I drive around my little narrow slice of the world are, are for rent signs in office buildings and retail. Sure. So a little background. Global real estate, similar to globalistic infrastructure, is a fully diversified portfolio of companies that range from office to retail to industrial and distribution. One point of clarification, we are neutral global real estate uh, into 2021, so we're not making a constructive Mm -hmm. bet there. But what I would say, Tyler, is it's not a secret to the public markets that those stocks in retail and in the office component have had some real pressure. So those stocks have uh, sold off considerably. But we're equal weight global real estate coming into 2021. Jim, thanks very much. Have a good holiday. Likewise, Tyler. Great to see you again. Jim McDonald, Northern Trust. Meanwhile, we're uh, tracking the latest developments uh, in the fight against COVID-19, and it is a tale of 
kind of two countries here at home, another shot in the arm for the Americans. Uh, but for, uh, as the first shipments of Moderna's coronavirus vaccine roll out today on their way to frontline health care workers and long term care patients. It is the second vaccine to receive emergency use authorization from the FDA after Pfizer's was also approved about a week ago. But concerns across the pond as dozens of countries suspend travel uh, to and from the UK after a new variant of COVID-19 is found to be circulating there. Prime Minister Boris Johnson placing strict lockdowns in London and parts of Southeast England as virus cases continue to strike. For more, uh, Spike, I should say. For more, let's welcome in our own Meg Terrell and Dr. Angela Rasmussen, a virologist at the Georgetown University Center for Global Health Science. Uh, thank you both for being here. Meg, Meg let me ta toss it, uh, start it off with you. When all is said and done, will more people get the Moderna vaccine in this country or the Pfizer vaccine in this country? Well, as of right now, the supply deals we've struck, uh, the U.S. has bought 200 million doses of Moderna's vaccine and 100 million doses of Pfizer's vaccine. We know that they are working on a deal for an additional 100 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine, but there is some back and forth with the government over the timing of delivery of those doses. So we'll have to see um, how that shakes out. But if they strike that, then we should have equal uh, availability of both vaccines and every single dose we hope will get used. When we t add those uh, 200 million plus 100 million, they get 300 million. But does that mean really enough for 150 million people to be inoculated because it's a two dose protocol? Yes, exactly. Um, you know, and there are more vaccines that are being tested and developed, of course, from Johnson & Johnson, and we might get to see their data in January, and that's a single-dose vaccine, so that would mean more supply right off the bat. AstraZeneca, of course, Novavax behind that, so the government has placed a lot of bets here, and they've also placed a lot of orders. They do have options to order more from Pfizer and Moderna as well, although the timing of when we could get those uh, might push us into the back half of next year, so the hope is, of course, that other vaccines work, too. Dr. Rasmussen, before we get to the question of this uh, variant strain or, or variant uh, in the UK uh, and talk a little bit about that and whether the vaccines work. Is 150 million uh, vaccinations in the United States sufficient? It's really not sufficient. I mean, ideally, we are going to need to have at least 60 to 70 percent of the population getting vaccinated. Um, and 150 million is less than half of the U.S. population. We also need to be thinking about vaccinations for the global population because we are we do live in a mobile world a mobile society so if people are not safe anywhere then they're not safe everywhere um so we need to be thinking about this in larger longer terms so let's talk about this variant that has been uncovered in uh england um the the word is that it transmits more quickly than the original coronavirus is there data to support that uh, and is it any more dangerous as an illness than the original coronavirus? And is there data to support that? So the data, there hasn't been much data released about this. Um, this, this is being uh, decided primarily on epidemiologic data. So this variant has become rapidly much more prevalent in southeastern England and in parts of London. Um, that suggests that it may have some sort of advantage in terms of its transmissibility. In addition to that, uh, the uh, government advisory board um, in the UK cited uh, viral loads being higher in patients who uh, were confirmed to have COVID and had this variant. 
So that may suggest that these patients are actually shedding more virus, but we don't know the mechanism by which this could be more transmissible, and we don't know for certain that it is. Um, this could also be explained by different behaviors, and people are relaxing the precautions that they're taking that are intended to reduce transmission. That could also potentially explain uh, the uptick. Um, in terms of virulence, we actually don't have any data at all that suggests that this is becoming more virulent. If anything, one of the mutations, specifically a deletion in the ORP8 gene of the virus, um, has been associated with reduced virulence. Mm -hmm. So uh, fortunately, this, this variant so, does not seem to be more pathogenic. So let me, let me, uh, so you're basically saying to step back a little bit here on this, uh, on this, uh, step back a little bit from the headlines uh, or from, uh, it's, and it's not just that Boris Johnson had a bad hair day, by the way. Uh, let's go to whether the vaccine, <laughs> how, could as, you tell? how could you tell? Right, exactly. Whether the <laughs> vaccine doctor, as we have it today, will, will presumably inoculate you against this different variant. That's question one. And is there the possibility, because this is a uh, messenger RNA based product, sort of a synthetic uh, uh, product, that we could adjust the vaccine more readily to fight this new variant than we might with a more conventional vaccine. You see what I'm driving at? I do. Um, so to answer question one, the answer for that is we don't know. Um, that's, an urgently, uh, that's an urgent question in terms of whether the vaccine will work. So there are um, multiple mutations in the spike protein that the vaccines are developed against. It is entirely possible that this new variant could be capable of evading at least some of the immunity mm -hmm. that those vaccines mm -hmm. elicit. But you are absolutely right, since these are mRNA vaccines, and also the viral vectored vaccines, um, such as Johnson & Johnson, are recombinant. Um, they can also be easily changed. Uh, that, that's really good news. If this is a variant that's capable of evading the vaccines, those vaccines could be easily adjusted to accommodate for that. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Meg, any final word here? Well, you know, I think Dr. Rasmussen gives extremely great perspective, as she always does. I mean, the idea that the this virus would be mutating, and I, I think I've seen from some virologists, and I'd uh, ask her to you know weigh in and make sure she agrees with this, but it would seem like it makes sense if, if viruses are going to be mutating for a reason for their own survival over time, uh, that they would get uh, more transmissible, but perhaps less virulent, less likely to kill their hosts. Dr. Rasmussen, is that, is that right? Do we typically see that with viruses over time? We often see that, not always. Um, I think that people make the assumption that viruses are always going to become less pathogenic. Mm -hmm. That's not always true. If we look at Ebola, for example, um, it hasn't become either more transmissible or more pathogenic, or less pathogenic. I mean, it's, it's still very pathogenic virus. Um, but oftentimes, yes, you're absolutely right. If there's selection pressure on a virus, um, it will change so that it can more efficiently uh, infect new hosts and hopefully not kill them before it can get into a new host after that. All so right. um, we do expect this virus to change. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to change for the worst. We have to leave it there, folks. Meg Terrell, Dr. Angela Rasmussen of Georgetown, where I was born in the hospital at Georgetown University. Thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. All right, coming up, D.C. has a deal on stimulus, a closer look at what's in it, who's getting the money, and how fast the relief could be coming. Plus, it takes a village to produce a vaccine, as you surely know. A closer look at one company that makes one of the components of it. And the stock is up 50% in 2020. The CEO of Avantor will join us with what production has been like now that the rollout is underway. See you in two minutes. This is The Exchange.
on CNBC. Welcome back, everybody. Lawmakers have reached a deal on a COVID relief package with Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin telling CNBC people will see money soon. The good news is this is a very, very fast way of getting money into the economy. And again, let me emphasize that people are going to see this money the beginning of next week. The beginning of next week. So how much money can people expect and what else is in the deal for that? Let's bring in Elon Moy. Elon. Well, Tyler, the total cost of that second round of checks is going to be $166 billion. Each adult will get $600. That's about half the amount that they got during the first round of stimulus. But each kid will also get $600, and that's $100 more than they got before. The payments would phase out for individuals making $75,000 a year or for couples that make $150,000. And those are the same parameters as last time. This package also provides another $300 a week boost in federal jobless benefits through mid-March. It also extends expanded unemployment benefits, and that's important because those were supposed to run out at the end of the week, impacting as many as 12 million Americans. There's also $325 billion for small businesses, including another round of PPP and $15 billion dedicated for live entertainment venues and for movie theaters. The airlines get $15 billion and Amtrak also gets a billion dollars. Now, so many people and businesses have been waiting months and months for this type of relief, but lawmakers have yet to release the final text of the bill. We understand that there are some printer issues and some file uploading issues. As I am told, this bill is going to be several thousand pages long. Still, the House is expected to vote on it today. The Senate says it wants to pass it as soon as possible. But Tyler, this process could still take a couple of days to play out, and that could impact exactly when those checks start hitting bank accounts. Back All right, Elon, thank you very much. Elon Moy reporting from the D.C. area. All right, the uh, devil is certainly in the details of this relief bill, as, as Elon just pointed out, thousands of pages long. Uh, so how will this deal set us up for the rest of the recovery, such as it is? Let's bring in James Pethokoukas, economic policy analyst at the American Enterprise Institute and a CNBC contributor, and Stephanie Miller, managing director of Fiscal Note Markets. James, let me start with you. Um, is this an appetizer for a main course that might come in 2021 or another round of appetizer stimulus next year? Uh, I would think that this is more of the main entree mm -hmm. and that to use, this, to use that metaphor in 2021 may see uh, maybe uh, some side dishes. I think it's going to be very hard, even if uh, Democrats win those two Georgia Senate seats, which we've been talking about, to get a lot more money than this in 2021. Cer certainly Democrats wanted more, particularly not in this bill, is the maybe $200 billion or more for state and local governments. Uh, that didn't happen. Democrats would like to try to get that uh, in 2021. I think that's going to be very, very difficult. But the thing is, there's a lot going to be happening in 2021. So Democrats, want they want that uh, state and local government money. Uh, they're going to want infrastructure for Biden. They're going to want those unemployment benefits extended after March. There's things Republicans are going to want. They're still going to want that liability shield. They're going to want those Trump tax cuts extended. So what we may end up seeing in 2021 is all those things perhaps coming together and some, to use the metaphor again, in some sort of big fiscal stew, I mean, I think that could happen. 
Uh-huh. So, th- so you see the parameters of the deal-making process that might take place in 2021. On the one hand, GOP wanting uh, liability protection, uh, protection for the t- Trump tax cuts, and the Democrats wanting infrastructure and, and uh, other monies. Uh, Stephanie, whatever happened to the two-plus trillion dollars that was part of the deal talk back before the election? Did, did, did both sides just fumble the ball here? Well, I love that. I mean, we could go even further back in the in late spring. It was $3.5 trillion. Yeah. So it keeps shrinking. Um, and so to your question, I think, and, and to the point of this conversation is, are we going to ever actually hit that much spending? And the momentum last March, taking us back months ago when the CARES Act passed, to me felt like, wow, we're going to be getting these huge, like, potentially trillion dollars stimulus packages like every six to eight weeks like the the kind of we have to throw money at the problem we have to solve the problem in late march felt palpable in washington and since then it has become much more measured and i'm, I'm looking at a tweet right now from alexandria ocasio-cortez one of the most progressive members of the house being a little bit critical that this bill is as a total package is 2.5 trillion dollars because it includes more government funding as well and she hasn't seen the text yet members haven't seen the text yet and they're supposed to vote on it today so she's like if this is the biggest bill in u.s history or the second biggest bill in u.s history and we haven't seen the text that's a problem so the big price tag is not just like an easy thing for all dems to get behind um and i think some of the nuance of how tightly the majorities are going to be in the new year as jimmy was saying are, are spot on yeah. No, it, it, I mean, there's been, uh, Jim, a, a lot of criticism over the years about bills that nobody's read that gets passed. And this is going to clearly be one of them uh, because you can't read. I, I took Evelyn Wood, but you can't speed read that fast. But but let me go back it's to like that. It's longer thing. than a Stephen King novel. It, like oh, my goodness. Yes. I, I mean, it's longer than <laughs> Obama's memoir, for goodness sakes. Um, so 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 let's go back to that idea. Right before the election, both sides were talking about I forget whether it was 1.6 trillion on the GOP side and 2.2 on the on the Democratic side. Was it simply that both sides couldn't allow the other to claim success? Is that why those numbers melted away and there was no pre-election deal? Well, I I, I, I hate to be a cynical, but being in Washington D.C., <laughs> uh, that's always a good baseline. And I don't think it's crazy to assume that th- that no one wanted to give anybody else any victories before that election. Uh, but beyond that, Republicans certainly had, I think, uh, a, a genuine skepticism from their point of view that we needed any kind of stimulus package anywhere near the size of what Democrats were talking yeah. about. Uh, they were concerned that those unemployment benefits would actually keep people from looking for jobs. They felt the economy was actually bouncing back quite nicely. So I think there were, from their perspective, real mm-hmm. concerns mm-hmm. among Republicans whether we needed uh, a stimulus bill anywhere near the size the Democrats were talking about. And yet the president was 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 speaking out in favor of those yeah. bigger numbers. It's it's curious. But but well, the president said what Mitch McConnell thought were two different things. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I think so. Uh, folks, thank you very much. James Pethokoukas, Stephanie Miller. Thank you. Have a good holiday. Thank you. Coming up, a holiday and a vaccine shipping rush. FedEx and UPS both facing a new set of challenges, and we'll check on what's ahead for the shippers. And Goldman's three big risks to the market. We'll talk about that next.
All right, welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Right now, the markets are a little bit mixed. As you see, the Dow Industrials have moved up by, well, there's a high-pressure system over the uh, Ohio Valley, and that is lifting the Dow, as you can see there. At one point, the Dow was down 423. What's leading the way? Well, financials, to the extent that anything is leading the way, up about 1.5%. The rest of the sectors, they are down. Energy and utilities, there's a low-pressure system pushing them down over the Rockies, okay? So the two biggest laggards, uh, the big winner was the financials up 1%, as we, as we mentioned. Here are some of the movers this hour. Lockheed Martin inking a $4.4 billion deal to buy the rocket engine manufacturer Aerojet Rocketdyne. Lockheed looking to beef up its offerings as competition from Blue Origin and SpaceX uh, for space contracts with the government. That's getting a lot tougher. Aerojet up more than 20% on the session, 24, as you see right there. Nike helping to lead the Dow out of the red and hitting a record high on the heels of its strong second quarter earnings. The uh, athletic apparel maker beat on the top and bottom lines and boosted guidance. And there you see Nike up better than 5% at 144. Rent-A-Center also higher after acquiring Asima, a lease-to-own fintech company, as it works to grow its virtual presence Shares of Rent-A-Center are currently up almost 10% at 38 and change. Let's go to Sue Herrera for a news update. Hey, Sue. Hello, Ty. Good to see you. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. As Americans continued to work from home and avoid travel in October, they drove less. U.S. drivers logged 259 billion miles in October. That's according to the U.S. Transportation Department. But that is down 25 billion miles over the same month last year. As COVID tensions spread due to the recently discovered variant in Britain, Serbia is one of the few European countries to open its ski resorts. Authorities are putting in place restrictions, including allowing its visitors to only use restaurants and cafes that are on the resort. And in California, Governor Gavin Newsom is quarantining again after coming in contact with an aide who has tested positive. This, as much of his state, remains under a stay-at-home order. It is the second time in a month that Newsom has had to quarantine after a potential exposure to COVID-19. You are up to date. That's the news update, Ty. Back to you. All right, Sue, thank you very much. And uh, with stocks under pressure today, earlier today, Goldman Sachs sees three Potential big market risks ahead, and while Goldman is maintaining its 4,300 S&P target for next year, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist David Koston says multiple factors, including a rise in inflation and interest rates, could derail the bullish thesis. You can read the firm's other two market risks at cnbc.com pro. And still ahead, we will get a check on the beaten down travel stocks as Europe deals with a new COVID variant. Moderna's vaccine starts to roll out, and the shippers are dealing with logistical nightmares on multiple fronts. It's been bumpy so far, folks. And the SPAC train keeps chugging along. We'll take a look at how Social Capital's Open Door is doing in its first day of trading. The Exchange will be right back.
All right, welcome back to the exchange, everybody. The uh, markets are a little bit lower today, as you see right there. Uh, the industrials, however, the exception ever so slightly higher. They are well, uh, I would say, off their lows. With the Dow down uh, now, uh, about, well, it was down about 400-plus points at its lowest. Let's drill down on some individual stock stories we're following today. Seema Modi has a look at the beaten-down travel sector. Frank Holland covering the logistics of the Moderna vaccine rollout and the challenges shippers are facing. And Julia Borston looking at yet another SPAC deal. This time it's online real estate company Opendoor, which started trading today. Seema, you get to go first. Sure, Tyler, you know, alarmed by reports of this new coronavirus strain, countries across Europe and now Asia issuing travel bans and closing their doors to British travelers. Germany, France, Italy, India are among the nations suspending air travel from the UK in an effort to keep this new strain from spreading. And countries like Belgium that connect with Britain via a tunnel, they're banning all passenger travel. The U.S. has not followed suit. I reached out to the State Department as to whether they would change that, and I'm waiting a response. Response. Uh, worth noting that hotel occupancy in Europe, it's been on the decline since September. It's currently right around 24% compared to the 38% we're at here in the U.S. But these restrictions in general, they are seen as a setback for pretty much all parts of the travel story. Hotels, online travel operators, even the cruise lines are trading down, uh, but they're not, as, they're not down as much as they were earlier today. Norwegian down by as much as 4%. Ty? A quick question about Airbnb, which has not really uh, joined the other travel stocks today. What's going on? Yeah, I was looking at that chart today, today as well, Tyler. Uh, you know, just looking at where it's traded since when going public on December 10th, it, it priced at $68, opened at $146, and since then it's sort of had an interesting ride so far. Today, uh, the stock was down as much as 6% in early trade, and now it's rallying here up as much as 8%. And I think one question, Tyler, uh, investors are trying to figure out is where do you place Airbnb? Is it in the uh, travel bucket or in the work-from-home bucket? Will it accelerate? Uh, this demand for home rentals if this virus continues to be a concern going into 2021 or for the foreseeable future. Uh, but I think that seems to be one question investors are still trying to answer. All right, Seema, thanks very much. Seema Modi, uh, let's check on the shippers now. Both FedEx and UPS are lower today. They are facing logistical challenges uh, with the rollout of Moderna's vaccine, but those aren't the only hurdles they're dealing with just four days ahead of Christmas. Let's get to uh, Frank Holland for that story. Hi, Frank. Hey, good afternoon, Tyler. You know, nearly 6 million doses of Moderna's vaccine will be shipped to nearly 3,300 sites here in the U.S. this week. At the exact same time, both FedEx and UPS are going to ship another 2 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine. And, of course, they're also shipping all of our holiday presents. All this while a potential storm in the Midwest and East could create more challenges. FedEx says vaccines get special treatment even during Christmas week. UPS is preparing for the worst possible weather to ensure vaccine delivery. We're sorting these in, a, in an isolated location so that we can maintain that comprehensive visibility and, and, and the prioritization that goes along with the vaccine shipments. We're overlapping weather maps on top of that uh, to make sure that we can have contingencies available. And we do have double and triple redundancy in some cases in case we have to move. And during the Nor'easter last week, on-time delivery for FedEx and UPS, it fell slightly. Anything above 95% is good. Anything below, not so much. The firm that compiles this data, ShipMatrix, they estimate as many as 3.5 million packages could be delayed by a day or more during Christmas week. 
Tyler, back over to you. So if I order something today, I'm probably not going to get it by Christmas, am I? <laughs> you know, that's a great question. The, the carriers have definitely pushed back on this idea that there's a definite deadline. It really depends on how much you're willing to pay, Tyler. If you're willing to pay for that overnight yeah. delivery, yes, you can still get it by Christmas. But I think most of us like to get the cheapest uh, shipping cost that we can because we want to spend money on our gifts. Yeah, I remember, uh, I remember years ago spending about $45 to ship some, an item that was worth about 10 But when you have to do it, you do it. Frank <laughs> Holland uh, in uh, Memphis. Thank you, man. All right. Tyler, uh, if you need my sizes, I can get them. To <laughs> All right. Good. Uh, social Capital's Open Door is having a rough first day of trading. Uh, and let's drill down on the newest SPAC on the block with Julia Borston. SPAC land. Julia, take it away. <laughs> well, Tyler, Open Door Technologies starting to trade today under the ticker Open. This after merging with Chamath Palihapitiya's SPAC Social Capital Head of Sphere Holdings and raising $1 billion with this IPO. Now, the company is a digital platform for buying and selling homes. It makes cash offers to homeowners, then often fixes up houses and then resells them, charging a percentage fee, which is a far simpler model than traditional real estate brokers. The company operates in 21 markets and has served 80,000 homeowners selling $10 billion worth of homes. The company says that its 2019 revenue was $4.7 billion. Now, CEO Eric Wu says this IPO is a step in the company's path to making selling a home simple and instant. He says the IPO will accelerate its plans to expand nationwide and to develop some new product offerings. Now, some of the company's investors include SoftBank, General Atlantic, and GGV Capital. The stock first began trading 6.7% higher than Social Capital's last close, but now, as you can see, it's up just about 1.5%. Tyler? They say they have $4.7 billion in revenues, and they've sold $10 billion in homes? That's a very... Wow. Well, well, yes, what? Tyler. Be, Explain that So, um, So... Th uh, so the um, the thing is that they take a percentage fee. So you have to look at whether or not they're generating revenue from each house that they're buying and selling. And in terms um, of those homes, the four, the ten billion dollars worth of homes, four point seven billion dollars in revenue, and of course, some of that revenue does, of course, go to the homeowners. I got it. Okay, thanks, Julia. Appreciate it. And still ahead, Moderna and Pfizer getting most of the glory for the development of the COVID vaccines. But there are lots of other companies involved in the whole production chain. We'll talk to the CEO of a key player and the impact the vaccine has had on operations next. The exchange returns right after this. Welcome back. The uh, big rollout of Moderna's vaccine is underway. Joining Pfizer in the fight against COVID-19, the effort to bring these two vaccines to the public has mobilized countless people, resources, companies. One of them is Avantor, which provides products to support almost all of Operation Warp Speed's 500 vaccine and therapy candidates. That stock is up over 300% from its year low. With us now is Michael Stubblefield, CEO and president of Avantor. Uh, did I, uh, Michael, welcome. Did I, am I pronouncing the company's name correctly? Just tell me. I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed if I didn't, but you tell me. Uh, no, Avantor, that's correct. Avantor, okay, fan, fa fantastic. For those who aren't familiar with Avantor, which came public about a year or so ago, am I correct on that? 
Yeah, we went public uh, in May of uh, of last year, and it's been uh, a pretty exciting ride since then. I am sure it has been, and, and you're trading ahead of where you were then. Not all IPOs can say that, obviously. For those who don't know the company, what do you do in the supply chain? What do you supply that makes your company so important to the therapeutics and the vaccines that we're going to uh, benefit from? Yeah, Tyler, thanks for giving us the opportunity to highlight what we do. We are uh, really proud of the role that we're playing in, the, in this uh, pandemic. We're going to be providing mission-critical products uh, uh, all along the, the value chain here to support uh, workflows like testing, uh, as well as vaccine development and, and therapy development. And then ultimately, we're going to be providing ingredients uh, that are used in the production of these, uh, of these vaccines. So uh, give me an example without going too technical on, on a product that is critical to either the Moderna vaccine or the Pfizer vaccine. Is it a solution, a suspension? Uh, what is it that, that I can wrap my head around? Yeah, so um, relative to like the mRNA technology, which underpins both the uh, Pfizer and the Moderna uh, vaccines, I think we've all become experts in, uh, in that workflow. Uh, and perhaps you've heard of things like uh, uh, lipid nanoparticles, mm -hmm. uh, of which there are several that are important in delivering uh, you know, that vaccine uh, into our bodies. And uh, we would be a producer of uh, some of those lipids. I see. I see. So it's a highly, highly technical area. I did. I see in my notes that you have something like six million different products. Is that how can that be? <laughs> we do. We have a very broad portfolio, and uh, you know it allows us to support our customers all the way from early phase uh, R and D and in uh, process discovery and development all the way through to uh, full scale manufacturing. We're going to be deeply embedded uh, with our customers every step of the way. Um, and, and not just for, for COVID. Uh, we're going to be supplying ingredients and products uh, to most of the biologic uh, therapies that are approved in, uh, in the market today. So, Michael, tell us about how the rollout of the vaccine has been going and the production of it uh, from where you sit. Uh, have there been any, any hairballs in the process? What's happening? Yeah, so as you can imagine, this process got underway uh, early in the spring, uh, actually. We've all been planning for, for this day, and obviously we're thrilled at the sight of trucks finally rolling out of uh, factories with vaccines that are being distributed. Uh, but we've all been planning for this day uh, from the very beginning. Uh, and it takes a lot of collaboration, as you can imagine, uh, given how dynamic uh, the situation has been. Uh, we've been uh, you know, providing materials. Our, our model requires that we customize these materials uh, you know, to be able to, you know, provide the functionality that our, our customers' platforms require. And so we've been working with our customers really since the early spring. Uh, we stood up a supply chain control tower very early on to identify, um, you know, potential bottlenecks in the supply chain, whether they be raw materials or uh, manufacturing capacity or labor constraints, and have been, you know, working steadily uh, to eliminate any of those constraints. And so, uh, most of our materials would have, uh, you know, significant lead times to them. Mm -hmm. So for the vaccines that are rolling out today, uh, we were probably producing those materials um, over the last several months mm -hmm. um, and had those in the hands of our of our customers as they were starting to ramp so let me, uh, their production. I, I assume your customers, when you speak to your customers, you're talking about large pharmaceutical companies. Maybe there are others that I that that you would identify here, but. But I've got to imagine that you as a, a component manufacturer and a manufacturer, you're making stuff not knowing whether the drug is going to work or not. So how, how big a risk is it? 
And, and certainly the others were doing the same. They were manufacturing product uh, in anticipation of approval. So there's a risk there, right? Yeah, there certainly has been risk uh, all along the way here. The, all the development work was obviously being done at risk. But um, given the lead times of some of our materials and the customized nature of what we do, you know, our customers who, as you mentioned, you know, are the, uh, the pharmaceutical companies that are making these vaccines, you know, started placing orders for these, um, you know, going back well into the third quarter. Uh, and those, those orders, just given the customized nature of that, uh, you know, we're going to be delivered and produced, uh, you know, regardless of the outcome here. And so what, now that we have a couple of vaccines that are approved, what that really now brings is certainty. Uh, and we can all mm -hmm. plan a little bit better in terms of what mm -hmm. the forward production plans and ordering will look like so that we can arrange our supply chains accordingly. Can you keep up with demand? We are. We are investing, um, you know, in capacity that will be, you know, phased in throughout uh, the coming year. And, um, you know, obviously we're trying to provide uh, volumes here that are unprecedented. But, uh, you know, we think our, the supply chain is in good shape to be able to keep up. Michael, thank you so much for your time and for the work you're doing. We appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Michael Stubblefield of Avantour. And coming up, markets shaking off concerns about a new COVID strain in Europe with the Dow turning positive, but not by too much. Let's see, what is it? It's up about, well, about a fifth of a percent, still above 30,000. How to navigate volatility? We got just eight trading days left in 2020. That is next. And for, don't forget, I almost said forget. Don't forget. You can watch CNBC live on the go using the CNBC app. The Exchange will be right back. All right, welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Stocks wiping out those early losses, the down near the high of the session, despite a new COVID variant in Europe. The S&P and NASDAQ are still slightly lower, but is this a buy in a dip? Well, joining us now is Jeff Kilberg, founder and CEO of KKM Financial and a CNBC contributor. Who wants to talk about stocks when we can talk about uh, Notre Dame football, Jeff? That is, that is true, Tyler. But I think the producer wants to talk about stocks. So I know if we go back, if I recall, Tyler, one of your favorite songs from Taylor Swift is Shake It Off. Yeah. So these markets are shaking it off today, bud. And we're interested to see as every opportunity you see the S&P 500, it's at lofty levels, it's back above 3,700. But just this morning, it cracked 3,600. I think it's a big deal when you look at the VIX. You talk about the VIX, which we like to utilize as the fair gauge. It went above 30 for the quite for the first time in quite some time. That was nearly a 40% move higher. But now, all of a sudden, it seems like people are repositioning, rebalancing, and really embracing all the volume being put in between the S&P 500 3,600 level and 3,700 level. So I think we have to remain calm and approach this as a buying opportunity, just like we have all year here in 2020, as extraordinary as it's been. What uh, what does it mean that we come to the end of the last eight, eight trading days of the year Presumably lots of people are going to be getting out of town. Maybe the volume is going to be lighter. Should we prepare for big swings? Well, I think with uh, certain lockdowns from state to state or country to country, maybe volume is a little bit bigger than historically speaking. But nonetheless, you have to expect the lighter volumes. I think a lot of the rebalancing, most of the financial advisors and family offices that we work with are looking at that. But they're still considering what other profits they can take, what other sectors they can rotate into. So look at the themes. We talk about some of the themes in 2020. We see those themes persisting. So if it's healthcare, look at a name like Johnson & Johnson. And even a laggard, Tyler, look at CVS. CVS has been down for the year. You're starting to see a little 
little bit of rotation to some of these laggards. But I think we have to stick with a lot of different themes out there. Home building. Certainly we like the home builders. A lot of folks are in Home Depot or even Lowe's. But look at Masco, MAS. That's a name that provides a lot of different supplies to those different companies. And I also think we have to look at PayPal. So there's certain sectors of the market or certain rotations that are still interesting in the next couple, eight days. And that's opportunity. PayPal owns Venmo, don't they? They do, and what did, Pit, what did PayPal do back in October? They changed the whole Bitcoin world. They yep. announced to their 350 million users that they are now allowing those users to incorporate cryptocurrency and Bitcoin as payment, as a fiat currency inside their matrix. And there was just a survey last week, Tyler, that came out that 20% of the 350 million users are now using Bitcoin as payment. So that's a really big deal. You're continuing Bitcoin surge. And I think any type of company looking or touching Bitcoin is going to appreciate as well in 2021. What was the biggest game you ever played in when you were playing at Notre Dame? And I know there were some fresh, big ones. There were. My freshman year, the game of the century we were playing Florida State against Charlie Ward. We beat them at home. Then the subsequent week, we lost to Boston College, but we're not going to talk about that. But the game of the century, 1993, Tyler, it was a big one. It should be a big game when they play uh, Alabama later this year. Uh, Jeff Kilberg, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. As always. And that, folks, does it for the exchange. I got through it. Up next on Power Lunch, we'll talk to former Macy's CEO Terry Lundgren about the state of retail as COVID cases continue to climb with just four days till Christmas. I'll join Rahel Solomon after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.